0: Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Over 200 hours of audio presentations are available on our website for you to download and burn to a CD for use in your car or home stereo or to play on a portable player such as an iPod. If you don't know how, visit our website for some instructions or just listen to the presentations on your computer. Also available is a schedule of our upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. All this is available at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. This presentation on the History of Islam is by Dr. William Marshner, professor of theology at Christendom College. The recording ends a little abruptly, but it is at the completion of the lesson. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Thank you, Sabatino, for those very uh, warming remarks. Before my canonization process gets too far (laughs) underway, I want to say a word about this talk. I am, by preparation, a scholastic theologian. My specialty is in Aquinas and his commentators. I am not a professional Islamist. However, when I was at Yale, one of the institutions that my friend Sabatino didn't mention, because I left the place without a degree, see, so it doesn't count. But when I was there, I was working on Oriental languages. I did Syriac and I did Arabic. And I was interested in studying the transmission of Greek philosophy, Plato and Aristotle, to the Arabs. How did that get to the Arabs? Well, it turns out there's a nice flattering story there for us Christians. Did you know that none of the great Arab philosophers could read Greek? Avicenna did not know a word of Greek. Uh, Veroese did not know any Greek. Al Ghazali did not know any Greek. They were all dependent upon the translations made by a Syriac speaking Christian. Hunaydin ibn Ishaq, a man of the ninth century. So we Eastern Christians had a role to play in getting the philosophical heritage to Islam whence eventually it could be borrowed back to the West from sources in Spain. But in any case, I've studied Arabic at that time and still retain some vestiges of <laughs> it of its grammar and can at least uh, pronounce those impossible looking words that are proper names in Arabic. But I got interested in the topic again just recently. A couple of years ago we had one of our, um, oh I don't know, not exactly common, but regular uh, personnel crises at Christendom College where I teach. And as a result, I was recruited to go back again and start teaching apologetics, which I hadn't done for years. Everybody who's a a junior, takes apologetics in the second semester of their junior year. And I thought, well, what should the units be? And it occurred to me, there should be, for the first time, a unit in this course on Islam. Not because Islamic objections to Christianity are hard to answer. Not at all. The Islamic objections to Christianity, in fact, are trivial. Muhammad had the idea that our Christian doctrine was that God the Father married the Blessed Virgin, and that's why he had a son. So when Muhammad rejected the idea that God has a son or a partner, He's rejecting an absurd anthropomorphism that none of us ever believed, none of us ever taught. And similarly, his idea of the Trinity was a very, very basically numb idea. uh, So there are not impressive objections against our faith coming from Islamic sources. But I'll tell you what is, perhaps a little hard to answer, And what needs dealing with, or at least this is what I felt when I started teaching this unit, that there is a problem now in our culture. There are a great many people around who assert what we may as well call a moral equivalence thesis. Namely, that serious, dare I say, radical Christianity is every bit as dangerous to the world as radical Islam. We too are intolerant. We have had our episodes of violent bigotry in our history. Well, there was a certain amount of discussion just a couple of years ago on the left of the Democratic Party how to outflank the Republicans by equating the religious right with Islamic mullahs and to tar anybody who was a social conservative with that brush. I sincerely hope that no one in this room is foolish enough to waste time watching The View, but you may have heard of an incident Not too long ago on that show when the um, demure and charming Rosie O'Donnell burst out that radical Christianity is every bit as scary as radical Islam. And the audience burst into applause. This seems to be the received view on the east side of Manhattan, huh? that we're scary people just as bad as the mullahs. And so what I wanted to take on was that very prejudice. Hence I introduced this unit. Now I'm going to break off from these introductory remarks and start giving you some of what I am supposed to talk to you about in this hour, namely a bit of history. Muhammad was born in the year 570 AD in the town of Mecca, which in those days was a center of pilgrimage in southern Arabia, but it was a pilgrimage connected with a pagan cult. The holy shrine down there in Mecca called the Ka'bah was at that time a pagan shrine and was full of all sorts of images, idols, and so on. People came and made pilgrimages to it. Muhammad was born and raised in that atmosphere and early showed an interest in religious matters. He married his first wife, Kenija. She was the first of some say 14, some say 25. The count of wives is a little bit Uncertain. But anyway, he married his first wife in 595, so he was 25 years old, and her name was Khadija. She had an uncle who was a Christian monk, and uh, we don't know exactly what kind of Christian monk, probably a Nestorian. But the legend is that when Muhammad first began to receive what he thought were revelations brought to him from God by the ministry of the angel Gabriel, whom he called Jabril, in 610. He consulted his wife's uncle, hoping to receive from him some confirmation that he, Muhammad, was really uh, receiving genuine revelations and so on. And according to the legend, this uncle thought, yeah, this is probably, probably genuine stuff. Three years later in 613, Muhammad began preaching Islam publicly in Mecca. And that immediately led to friction with the population of that town. Now, when I say he was born in the town of Mecca, you think, well, maybe sort of urban, small, anyway, not too big, but sort of an urbanized environment down there. And so, Not so. It was a tribal society. Several tribes were large enough and wealthy enough to have towns. Well, the tribe that had the town of Mecca was called the Quraysh. Q U R A Y. Sh. in case you want to have to spell that. All right, so the Quraysh did not like Muhammad's attacks upon their inveterate polytheism. There were fights and threats, and some of Muhammad's earliest followers then fled from Mecca and stayed for a couple of years in Abyssinia. Now, Abyssinia at that time was a Christian monarchy on the other side of the, of the, uh, the Gulf of, uh, of Oman, hmm? down in the, near the Horn of Africa. In 619, Khadija died. So Muhammad was free to marry again, and he took multiple advantages of that, as I said. In 619 also... Legend has it, and here the authorities are somewhat divided, but there are well-respected Muslim authorities who credit the story. Muhammad was misled by his angelic messenger. Or at least he was misled in what he thought the angel was telling him. It's 619... 4 years have gone by since the trouble with the Quraysh got to be so bad that some of his followers had to flee to Abyssinia. He's getting very worried, he wants to make peace. So, he enters into negotiations with the elders of the tribe. And the deal would be this. The Quraysh will admit that Allah, the one the god that Muhammad preached, is the only true God. However, their traditional pagan divinities are intercessors with Allah. So they should sort of put down to angel status, but retained as intercessors. All right? And Muhammad had the idea that he got from his angel this solution. And supposedly it was in practice for a while. Then Muhammad thought the better of it it came to him that this was a syncretistic solution. So he repudiated it. Those verses that he originally read as readings, Quran, that dealt with this compromise solution were subsequently dropped from all collections of the Quran. Those compromise verses that indicated some sort of syncretism were called the Satanic Verses. That's what Salman Rushdie's famous novel was about. The novel that got poor Rushdie condemned with a fatwa from the Ayatollah Khomeini. Now, in 622, Muhammad gave up trying to Coexist with the people there in Mecca, and he fled. He and his followers fled to the town of Medina. And it's interesting that the year six twenty two is the year chosen by Islamic authorities to begin the count of the year. Number no, six twenty two is their year one. They don't start from Muhammad's birth. They don't start from 610 when he supposedly received his first revelations. They count from 622, and that's very interesting. Because it was in 622 that Muhammad, having arrived in Medina, becomes the commander of a people. Now, for the first time, he has a polity which follows him. And the male members of that polity will make war for him. So for the first time, he is a geopolitical leader. And that's the beginning of Islam as it is traditionally understood. Two years later, there was um, an incident which uh, embarrasses some Muslim apologists to this day. In 622, Muhammad married a seven-year-old girl. Her name was Aisha. She was out playing on a swing. And her mother came to her and said, get dressed, you're going to be a bride of the prophet. She didn't know anything about what that meant. She was happy to put on a pretty dress. Two years later, the marriage was consummated. So he consummated marriage with a nine-year-old girl. Now, Okay, that was the youngest of his wives. But you have to ask yourself the question, does that make Muhammad a pedophile? Well, I admit most of his wives were older, some much older. The thing you have to understand is that the concept of pedophilia, at least heterosexual pedophilia, would be an anachronism talked about in Arabia in the seventh century AD. Because child marriages were common. It was common. And to this day, in some parts of little more backwoodsy parts of Islam, it is common. There was a survey done in 2003 of girls in, an, in Afghan refugee camps You know, because of the war against the Taliban, there were a lot of displaced people. and It turned out that in one camp, at any rate, all of the second graders were engaged. And girls in the third and the fourth grade were already married. So this is not unusual. In fact, there's a famous remark by the Ayatollah Khomeini himself. the great old grouch of Iran that taking a bride before her first blood, that is before she menstruates, is a great blessing. And Khomeini in a public address told the fathers of Iran that they should do their best to make sure that their daughters do not see their first blood under the father's roof. They should be married before puberty. Remarkable. Now, what is really remarkable about this, I think, is not that in a very backwoods, so to speak, tribal, largely illiterate society, more than a thousand years ago, there would be this practice of very early marriage, child marriages. I mean, there are lots of weird things that you run into if you look around the world anthropologically. It's not all that surprising. But what is truly amazing is that such a practice should become normative. That anyone would think that that ancient, and to our minds, very barbarous practice should be preserved. But that is indeed the classical Islamic view, precisely because God's revelation to Muhammad is definitive. His acts represent the model for all mankind. There can be no modification, no liberalization, no change that has full religious sanction. In 624, Muhammad began the first of his campaigns Here are his followers living in Medina, not native to the place. They don't all have jobs. They don't own land there. They begin to feel in need of funds. The remedy for that is traditional in the South Arabian tribal society. You need money, conduct a raid. So there was the raid At Nakla, uh, a caravan was attacked and various stores were carried off, leather, dates. You can't believe what a big deal it was to, you know, get get hold of a couple crates of dates. This This was true treasure. In 624, also, same year, the first of the great battles in which Muhammad was engaged, the Battle of Badr. The Mohammedans were outnumbered. The Muslims were outnumbered. They were being attacked by the Quraysh. The Quraysh had said, all right, all right, all right, you went off to Medina, but we still don't like you. We're going to put an army together and come get you. So the Quraysh got their army together. They and the Muslims met at a place called Badr. And against the odds, the Muslims won the battle. After the battle, the chiefs and nobles who were captured were killed. This is the beginning of a tradition of what to do with your enemies. All right? Women and children can be taken as captives, but enemy warriors, even after they're defeated, even after they lay down their arms, are subject to being killed, having their heads cut off, and so on. Now... After the Battle of Badr, Muhammad began to get in more and more trouble with the Jewish tribes in the area. In addition to the pagan tribes like the Quraysh, there were a number of Jewish tribes in southern Arabia at this time. Further north, there were even some Christianized tribes. But in the south, there were Jewish tribes. One of them was called the Kainuka. One of them was called the Banu Nadir. One of them was called the Banu Qurayza. One after another, Muhammad fought them, got them expelled from Medina. In the case of the Banu Qurayza, he had their men liquidated. Just liquidated. Let me put it to you this way. To get an idea of Muhammad's transition from a man who is receiving religious messages which are plausible to some people as as revelations, transition from that to a man who is advancing his cause by a warfare, even a kind of genocide against the Banu Kuraiza, you have to understand that Muhammad kept making offers to the Jews. Why you don't convert and believe me? Why don't you become Muslim? Why don't you look in your scriptures? Muhammad Muhammad repeatedly told the Jews, look in my scriptures and you will find prophecies of me. Moses foretold me. Well, unfortunately, when the Jews looked in their scriptures, they couldn't find any such prophecies. Muhammad also told the Christians, look in your book, look in your book. You will find that I am predicted by Jesus. I am predicted under the name of Ahmed. In Arabic, Ahmed and Muhammad are from the same root. I am predicted under the name Ahmed. Do you know where that is in the New (laughs) Testament? Neither do I. And (sighs) Muhammad became increasingly embittered. And he began to accuse the Jews and the script, uh, Christians of having falsified their scriptures. Whereupon they become rebels against the true revelation of God, which they had received in the past. Muhammad never denied that the Jews had received genuine divine revelation. So had the Christians. He, he believed in a whole string of prophets going all the way back to Adam. Adam was a prophet on his list. Noah was a prophet. Abraham was a prophet. Lot was a prophet. Yes, Lot, the guy whose wife turned into a pillar of salt, that Lot, was a prophet. Um, Isaac was a prophet. Jacob was a prophet. Muhammad was a little bit confused. He thought that Isaac and Jacob were brothers, but never mind that. Um, Moses was a prophet. Aaron was a prophet. So the Torah of the Jews, the book of the law, was a genuine revelation from God. And of course, he maintained that Jesus was a prophet, very great prophet, not divine, but a great prophet. So the the gospel was taken by him to be a true revelation from God. But when the Jews and the Christians could not find in their scriptures these alleged prophecies of Muhammad, he began to maintain that they had falsified their sacred books and thus departed from the pristine revelation originally given to them. Now, It's like this. Here's my little parable. I want you to imagine a young man of literary talent and ambition. He wants to be a writer. And he scribbles away. He writes a short story or two. He writes a a novel. He writes a couple of poems. And he keeps submitting these works of his to the New York publishers. Well, unfortunately, every publisher gives him a rejection slip. And as the rejection slips accumulate, the young man becomes more and more bitter, more and more angry, until in the end he plans a series of violent raids upon publishing offices. Eventually ends up putting certain publishers to death. Now, did this young man begin his enterprise as a criminal conspiracy? No. Did he originally contemplate a kind of warfare? No. Similarly, Muhammad did not begin his career as a preacher of the the one through God Allah with criminal intent. But as the rejection slips accumulated, he became more and more bitter. And then, of course, he he keeps receiving these alleged angelic messages, but his main mode of operation changes. He becomes the head of a warring party. He drives out of Medina all of the Jews. In 627 it was, Muhammad beheaded all the men of the Qurayza tribe and enslaved their women and children. He had two trenches dug in the marketplace. Two trenches dug in the marketplace. And he had all the males of the Qurayza tribe old enough to have pubic hair. This was the test of whether you were an adult, whether you were an enemy of his. If you were that old, you were brought to the marketplace two by two and Muhammad personally cut off the heads of the whole Male population, that was adolescent or older. The women and children were enslaved. In 628, he besieged an oasis, exiled the Jews from that oasis. And <laughs> another anti-Semitic campaign. <laughs> exiled the Jews from the oasis and seized uh, many, many dates. But after the victory, there was a feast given. And one of the captives, the Jewish woman from the Kaibar Oasis, got to cook a lamb and she poisoned it. One of Muhammad's associates had a couple of bites of the lamb and died. Muhammad suspected that the lamb was poisoned and took only the smallest taste and then questioned the woman. Did you poison this? She admitted she had. After all, she said, you killed my father, you killed my brothers. What do you expect of me? Now, People were pretty tough down there in those oases. It didn't turn many other cheeks, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, Muhammad thought that that was a fine, candid confession and didn't kill her, at least according to some traditions. But he did feel later on that he never fully recovered from that nasty bite. And when he was on his deathbed in 632 he felt that that poison had finally worked its way to his heart. Well, let's not jump too far ahead of ourselves. Two years after the raid on the Kaibar oasis, in 630, Muhammad conquered Mecca. Took his army there. The Quraysh uh, more or less threw in the towel. He conquers Mecca. He gets control of the Ka'bah, the shrine. Cleans out all of the idols, the pagan idols, One tradition says that among the images in the shrine, there was an icon of Jesus and Mary. That he did not destroy, but he did remove it from the Kappa. That's one tradition. In the next two years, he gave instructions about how the pilgrimages are to be done and planned a warfare against the Byzantine Empire, conducted a kind of a raid on on a border town, or ordered a raid on a border town, the Byzantine garrison withdrew. So he got the town for nothing. I'm sorry about that. But anyway, um, um, you have to understand that Muhammad died, 632, in control of the Arabian Peninsula. From his base in Mecca and Medina, he was able to secure the allegiance of all of the other tribes, including the Bedouin, whom, interestingly enough, Muhammad didn't like. He thought they were too materialistic and, you know, sort of vacillating. But anyway, he secured the loyalty of the Arabian Peninsula. You wonder why, within a year or two after his death, there was this possibility that suddenly these desert tribes would be able to overthrow the Persian Empire... Drive the Byzantines out of vast areas, Syria, Palestine. Within a few years uh, his second successor, Umar, has conquered Egypt. You just wonder how this sudden military success was possible. You have to understand this. Let me give you an analogy. Do you know about the Hundred Years' War? If I say the Hundred Years War, what do you think I mean? France and England, right? Uh, 14th, 15th century. Yeah, Hundred Years War. Suppose at the end of the Hundred Years War, with France and England both pretty well exhausted, there had been a sudden invasion from the other side of the Rhine. Okay, watch out, the Germans are coming. I think they would have had a pretty easy time. Well, so it was in 634, 635, 636, with Muhammad, Muhammad's followers, and those two empires. There had been a hundred years of war between the Byzantine Empire and the Persian Empire. That war had left both empires bled white of manpower and exhausted. The most famous campaigns of that war came near the very end under the Emperor Heraclius, who conquered, the uh, you know, beat a Persian army to get back the True Cross. Remember that uh, Constantine's mother had searched for the True Cross in Jerusalem, had found it. Then the Persians came and stole it. The Emperor Heraclius vowed to get it back. That that was the end of a hundred-year-long struggle, getting back the True Cross. Both empires were exhausted. And all of a sudden, there's this fresh army on the field. So you needn't speculate about miraculous intervention on behalf of Islam. And you don't even really need to call upon the power of Satan to explain these military successes. There was a geopolitical situation, a power vacuum, into which Muhammad was able to stride. All right, now... After Muhammad's time, there came a series of successors who are called the Rightly Guided Caliphs. Muhammad's successor will step into his position as commander of Islam. The title that the Caliph bears is Prince of the Faithful. I will have more to say about that title later on. His immediate successor was Abu Bakr, who reigned, if I may use that expression, just two years, 632 to 634. Abu Bakr was succeeded by Omar. Sometimes you see his name spelled Umar, sometimes Omar. It's the same word in Arabic, just a dialectical difference in how the vowel is pronounced. Omar was caliph from 634 to 644, that's 10 years. He was followed by Uthman, or Uthman, 644 to 656. All right, that's 12 years. You might be interested in knowing that it was during the caliphate of Uthman that the Quran was collected. Remember that Muhammad was illiterate. He did not write down the messages he got from the angels. He memorized them, or said he did. He had at one point an amanuensis. That's one of my favorite words. It's a, it's a really fancy word for a secretary. Okay. So, I mean, if, if, you get, if you want to be a really Tony boss, tell it, you know, my, aman, my amanuensis will make an appointment for you. Anyway, um, he had at one point an amanuensis, but the fellow apostatized didn't believe in the revelations anymore. This guy had been writing down the the visions. He left, and there was nobody to write down the visions. So they were held in memory and told and retold and told and retold. So you have an oral tradition that has to sustain the memory of all these things from 610, when the messages begin, to about 650. So there's about a 40-year period there when the Quran does not exist in writing. Uthman called for a collection to be made and gave the overall editing job to a gal named Zainab. She was one of Muhammad's other wives. There's a story about how we got her too, but I don't want to go into it. Zainab, the widow, was charged with collecting all of the the parts of the, of, of the Qur'an, and Uthman put out under his auspices then a kind of definitive edition based on the widow's work, Zainab. All right, after Uthman came Ali, 656 to 661. He only reigned six years, and then he was assassinated. Now, Ali is a very interesting story. Immediately upon the death of Muhammad in 632, there was a dispute as to who was to be his successor. Now, Muhammad died in the arms of Aisha. She was more than nine years old by now. She was what 19 or something like that. She had become very fond of the old boy. And um, in his final illness, He was at her house. In the last months of his life, he made a regular round. He would visit one wife per night. But anyway, he he was in Aisha's house that night, and he was overcome and died in her arms. So she was witness to his last words. According to her and other sources, he wanted Abu Bakr to be his successor, ABU, B-A-K-R, Abu Bakr, to be his successor. But others in the Muslim community said that can't be right. The successor should be a member of the prophet's family. Now, the right member of the family to pick was a cousin of his who had also become his son-in-law, and that was Ali. So there was a pro-Ali party already. They never accepted Abu Bakr. Then they had trouble accepting Omar and Uthman. Well, the whole quarrel should have died out because finally Ali got to be caliph. Yes. The trouble is six years later he was assassinated. Support for Ali as opposed to the other succession is the basis of the so-called Shiite uh, Shiite the term Shiite comes from Shiat ali, the party of ali Shia is a is, is a grouping uh, a party and um, that is that is the source of uh, and as you know the um, the the pro ali Shiite party dominated the situation in in Persia where they are still the overwhelming majority of the population, they're also the majority in southern Iraq. And they have substantial populations in a few other places. But uh, relations between them and the rest of the Muslim world who follow the Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman succession is always uneasy and troubled. Now... You have to go down more than a hundred years from the death of Ali to get to the truly great caliphs. Omar was a wonderful military commander. Uh, Some of these early caliphs were indeed gatherers of great big quick victories But as far as having in hand an empire that amounted to something, even fiscally, they were not in such good shape. The golden age of Islam is under the dynasty of caliphs called the Abbasids, A-double-B, long A-S-I-D, the Abbasids. And we may as well begin with Harun al-Rashid, 786 to 809. Harun, H-A-R-U-N, R-A-R, Rashid, capital R-A-S-H-I-D. 786 to 809. He rules this enormous empire stretching from India to the Pyrenees. Then comes his successor, Al-Mamun, 813 to 833. Under Al-Mamun... Houses of learning were opened up in Baghdad. Baghdad becomes a tremendous center of learning and culture. That translation work that I was talking about, where the Syriac Christians like Hunain ibn Ishaq were translating Greek works into Arabic, that was all financed at Baghdad and was happening in Baghdad. As a matter of fact, we're told by the records of the time that under the reign of Mahmun. It was fashionable in the capital to have a Syriac accent. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ's church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.